This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. I do think that this is obviously going to be a moment in a lot of our lives that will change the way in which we think about risk and resiliency, especially people in, in industries like ours, where there is sort of a either a future casting element happening or, you know, an assessment of risk and severity and alarm that we're constantly making as members of the media. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a show I have wanted to do because it is a conversation I have wanted or maybe needed to have. And I think it's going to be a little bit of a different experience than it sometimes is because you're hearing me work out something that is very unfinished in my own head that I am struggling with. And you're you're basically overhearing a conversation I am having and thinking about with somebody who I love having these kinds of conversations with. So in the run-up to coronavirus, I think there's a lot the media needs to look back at. I think a lot of our coverage is really good. And frankly, a lot of the good coverage gets underplayed now. But there are also things we really missed. And the much harder question is not even what we missed, but what we correctly reported on, but it turned out to be wrong, like the guidance around masks or whether or not there was asymptomatic transfer. And this question of what do you do when the people who know the most about a subject are wrong, like not just what do you do in that moment, how do you know what their certainty level is, what the probability they're wrong is? And then, like, how do you communicate that? How do you change that guidance? How do you maintain the audience's trust in a story that is changing? It's really hard. It's really hard. I think it's something we have to look at very frontally. So my guest today is Charlie Warzel. He's at the New York Times op-ed page. He's a brilliant writer and thinker and reporter on issues, first of tech, but in particular, of the way technology and information and media are interacting with each other and changing each other. He and I talk about these issues a lot, and he's someone who's thinking on them I really respect. This is not a podcast where like the question gets answered. This is a podcast where the question gets struggled with and where we sit in some discomfort. I hope people sort of listen to it with that in mind. Um, it's a podcast where I'm trying to think through criticisms of the media, criticisms I have of media coverage or even our own coverage. And also, I think we did a lot that was right that I do feel frustrated that doesn't get um, attention. So there's some of that, too. Like, this is not me donning a hair shirt. This is me trying to think through the situation we're in and what can be learned from it, like what can be built on. And then also just 
struggle with the pressures under which we do work. You know, we want to believe that we can always do great work, that we can always get it right. And sometimes even if you're doing a lot of the things right, you're going to get it wrong. And that's hard because when you do that, you feel like you're failing people who rely on you. And then it's hard too because then you need to come back into work the next month on top of these new understandings and, and keep doing it. So again, not going to solve it here, but I think it is worth trying to have these conversations out in the open. And that's what this is. This is a conversation I am having and thinking about out in the open. And it's provisional, and uh, I hope it gets taken that way. As always, my email is reclineshow at vox.com. Here is the great Charlie Warzel. Charlie Warzel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Do you think fake news has been a big problem in this? I go back and forth. I think that fake news is generally a moniker and it's sort of become, you know, a, like a cliched phrase that is more useful, I think, in giving people an idea of, you know, something that's that's junk or garbage. And, and there's sort of a uh, malevolent, mischievous idea around it, right? Like that, that someone would would make up the news is obviously just a, you know, has a sort of deranged quality to it. But I think broadly throughout the sort of misinformation focus that we've had or the disinformation focus, whatever, the fake news focus that kind of came into play right around the 2016 election and sort of like the Macedonian teens who are making up news for, for profit. I've always thought that that's, you know, really been kind of a, um, an overstated story. The amount of people who are genuinely architecting and engineering absolute junk news, that's always been a smaller problem, but it's been the most outrageous example. It's been something that people can kind of cling to. But, you know, here with the, with the COVID crisis, with the pandemic, I personally feel like there hasn't been a, a glut of that, that, that we haven't sort of very broadly seen a huge push towards widespread use of junk science. A, a good example would be the the idea that, you know, you need to point a hairdryer up your nose. That's one that kind of got a little bit of play. I think there were some like people in a in Florida in the state legislature who who were talking about that and therefore it got a little bit of coverage. But broadly speaking, that stuff is kind of tamped down pretty quickly. And, and so I think this idea of of what is completely and totally fake along the lines of, you know, the the Pope endorses Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump or whatever those, you know, those old headlines were. I think that that there is a little bit more of a like a, a media literacy that is that has happened in terms of being able to spot stuff that is just like patently false or or made up and is fantastical. And I think that the, the real trouble lies with, with with the other, you know, more nuanced forms of of junk news. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you said that and, and because I, I agree, number one. So it's always nice when people agree with me. But I do want to talk about these other more nuanced forms because you've written that this is a bit of a nightmare scenario for the media. The coronavirus emerges in the middle of a golden age of media manipulation. It's resilient and stealthy and confounding to experts, and it moves faster than scientists can study it. And what seems to be true today can be wrong tomorrow. I've been tracking some of these conversations, have been at the center of some of them, and the way in which things that we thought were true a couple months ago are no longer true today, it's the worst possible situation for the media because the way you might normally do your reporting begins to break down. 
And what you somehow need to be doing is probabilistic reporting, but we don't really have good models for that. And so it, it does and will create a trust crisis. Maybe as a way of grounding this, we should talk about face masks, because that's somewhere where all kinds of media organizations, Vox, and New York Times, everybody was talking for years to the CDC and others, um, the U.S. Surgeon General, and everybody said, don't worry about face masks. They're not that effective. Um, they're more trouble than they're worth. You want to save them for nurses and others. And then midway through this crisis, eventually, they reverse that guidance, at least to some degree. And so that's a real problem for the media because we were trying to be accurate and what we were being told wasn't accurate and nobody wants to like second guess the CDC on face masks. I'm not an epidemiologist, but that stuff does real damage in the long run uh, to people's faith in us. I think it's totally true. I've spent a lot of time. There was, I, I want to say probably three weeks ago to maybe a month ago, there was this sort of backlash, like right as we're like cresting into the peak of this epidemic, you know, as as the reports start to come in, you know, ICUs are, are approaching capacity in New York and that sort of unthinkable moment where the American healthcare system looks like it, it, it might possibly explode. Uh, there was this real backlash against against the, the media and it was founded. And, and I think you're, you're right. Like face masks is the, is the place for this. But, but I did a lot of soul searching in that moment thinking, you know, I'm someone who covers technology, media, politics. I've never been a, a science reporter. I've never been, you know, a, a, someone who's covered infectious diseases. But, you know, should I professionally have seen this coming in some way? And, I've done a lot of of thinking about like what what is you know the best thing I could do should I have been paying more attention to this global issue uh, to global issues in general right should I just always be paying 10% more attention to China and what is happening in China and if so you know what would I how would that have informed the way that I would have thought about this crisis in January and early February before it really became real to me as the biggest story in the world. And I think the face mask part is, is I think you're right to focus on that because I, I don't know what the answer is there. I mean, the, the type of reporting that anyone would do would be to go and reach out to the, the government experts to speak to the people who are in these positions of authority. And if that system breaks down, I don't know what, what we're really supposed to do. Obviously, anyone who comes out incredibly forcefully saying, you know, in January, this is going to be a pandemic that is going to overwhelm our ICUs, that we're going to completely shut down America. You know, that person would have been in early February, like run out of town on on a rail, uh, you know, via their Twitter replies, or they would have been accused of inciting panic. Um, my Times colleague in the newsroom, Donald McNeil, went on the Daily probably in very late February. And it was a, you know, incredibly highly listened to episode where he mentioned that he was, that this pandemic was very real. He was very worried about mass death and that he was stockpiling food. And I saw a lot of people in the press calling that out and saying, this is irresponsible that the infectious disease reporter at the Times would gesture at the idea of stockpiling food. And then, you know, lo and behold, that interview has been cited by a lot of people as their sort of wake up moment that this was when they realized this was 
you know, something to take seriously. Maybe they should go to Costco and stock up, or maybe they should start thinking about if they, you know, have a plan in place for, uh, you know, a disaster emergency scenario. So I don't, I think there's no good answer here. And I think what you say about this idea of probabilistic reporting is, is somewhere along the lines. I mean, I, when I look at any news organization's sort of, you know, the coverage that's getting bandied around by contrarians as, oh, don't worry about the pandemic, or there are a few pieces from the opinion section in the Times where I work by outside contributors and, you know, that address this as sort of playing down the, the worry and fear. The one thing I've noticed about that from a media perspective is that there is sort of a realm of certainty around that type of framing of a story where you're saying, oh, you know, like, let's let's take a beat here. Let's breathe. You don't need to worry. It's sort of framed and couched in a overly assured tone. And I think that when it comes to reporting on science or infectious disease or, you know, probably even politics, I think the media needs to maybe move a little bit towards a correction of probabilistic, but also embracing uncertainty. I think what we've seen now is that there's, you know, people want answers, but they also want to be leveled with right now. And I think generally that's probably how a sophisticated news consumption audience wants to be treated. They want to be treated with an understanding of the facts on the ground. And part of what we need to do generally is embrace some of that uncertainty and say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and be a lot more vigilant about foregrounding that what we don't know. So it's funny because I've been going back through Vox's early coverage of this uh, a number of times and to, to try to think about what did we do right? What did we do wrong? I wasn't running this coverage, but I think about it a lot. And when I look back, so we began covering what we were calling a new mysterious pneumonia outbreak in China on January 7th. And then a couple Days or weeks later, January 20th, we have this story, Wuhan pneumonia outbreak, what we know and don't know. And one thing I will note is that not just Vox, but a lot of organizations did run a lot of coverage that was probabilistic. My actual favorite piece we did was by Julia Belouz in, in early February, and it was called Eight Scenarios for the Coronavirus Outbreak. But that stuff gets very little attention at the time and even less attention in retrospect. And what gets more attention is anything where things were stated definitively or firmly. So we had a tweet that I think it oversimplified an article, but the experts in the article were saying, hey, this is probably not going to become a pandemic. And so the tweet then boils that down to no, it won't be a pandemic, right? Which is a reduction of something that was oriented in that direction, but you know, was it was a little bit at least more couched. And it's hard because in some ways, I don't think the media did that bad of a job, given what we were being told. Like in February, um, Anthony Fauci said the risk from coronavirus to the U.S. is minuscule. But the problem when I when I think back on what we did wrong here has to do with how did we trust the experts? We were assuming the people we were talking to really knew what was going on when on some level it would have been at least discoverable to say, we just don't know that much here. And so long as we know that we don't know that much, how much we trust the people who know a lot in terms of their background knowledge has to go down. And on the other hand, it's really hard as a reporter, really, really hard to question like what the five epidemiologists you just called are telling you. And I think both epidemiologists and reporters 
um, and this is true for people in all kinds of different industries, we deal all the time with stories that could become something huge, viruses that could become the next global pandemic, financial crises that could or financial issues that could become the next financial crisis. And most of them don't. And so you become somewhat used to talking things down. Right. You be, you're generally like putting things in context and saying, yeah, I know that looks bad if you just read that one story. But like, you know, take a look at the broader context. But if you're used to talking things down and everything is maybe a five percent or two percent or a one percent uh, probability of becoming like the worst thing ever. That eventually is going to really roll snake eyes for you when you're sort of effort to keep like the audience calm so that you don't constantly seem like the news organization crying wolf because like every story you write could potentially be blow up into something terrible. And on the other hand, something will eventually blow up into something terrible. And if you're used to writing like the reasons to not freak out about everything, like you're going to mislead people eventually or not even mislead, but like you're not going to have been sufficiently alarmist at the time you wanted to be. It's a really hard question. Like I've like one reason I wanted to be on the show today is like I am really struggling with it. Like I am looking back and thinking like what would what would we have done? In many ways, I don't think I would have done things all that different. I think a lot of the early coverage is good, but I keep thinking about how do I cover things more probabilistically without somehow substituting expertise in for things I don't actually have expertise in. I'm still having trouble grappling with the enormity of of what is happening and and this you know the the idea of i mean i don't know how how reliable the statistic is but even if it's off by a couple degrees it's still staggering the idea that you know more than a billion children are out of school right now uh, the the fact that you know most of the world is shut down in in some capacity i do think that this is obviously going to be a moment in a lot of our lives that will change the way in which we think about risk and resiliency, especially people in, in industries like ours, where there is sort of a, either a future casting element happening or, 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 an, you know, an assessment of risk and severity and alarm that we're constantly making as members of the media. I think some of the problem here has to do with the fact that, you know, we haven't really had a pandemic like this, or we haven't had a true, like, fissure in our way of life like this, really in like a lifetime of people, you know, there, there aren't a lot of people alive who went through 1918. There's a very small amount of those people uh, still alive today. And, and, and certainly none of them who are in positions to, you know, loudly ring an alarm bell. Uh, to some degree, if you're a real systems thinker, if you're somebody who is constantly assessing risk and resiliency and thinking about the interconnected ways in which our systems work globally now and are reliant on each other, then you you might have been someone who would have rung the alarm bell a little bit earlier. But even then, you probably wouldn't have rung it as loudly as needed to be rung because this is, again, a, you know, kind of once every hundred plus years type of crisis, I think. And so there's a little bit of like, we're just not equipped, I think, as as human beings to to understand that. And the ones who are are ones, I think, who sort of almost unnaturally are systems thinkers and ones who are constantly assessing that risk and resiliency and probabilities and are maybe, you know, more suited towards this, you know, really overweighing the 1%. I actually think that's a reason why a lot of people in Silicon Valley, a lot of entrepreneurs have not only adopted this contrarian mindset towards the virus to some degree, but also 
were some of the people who took it really seriously early. You know, you had some venture capitalists in the Valley who, you know, I think banned handshakes. And that was a, you know, that was its own sort of like a mini dust up of, you know, look at these people overreacting. And then obviously they kind of were proved to be not overreacting. But I think those types of people are kind of systems thinkers and they are sort of always assessing, you know, the probability of the one or two percent and, you know, the type of returns you can get from that. That's sort of the tech investor strategy. And I think that they're very well equipped to deal with that as as thinkers. But that's not necessarily the way that you would want, you know, the press to react. I I, I think a lot about, you know, the idea that we're also competing a little bit with you know, this general idea of information ecosystems and how to present information and how to get information to go. So when you think about, you know, the tweet from Vox that you were looking at that was sort of an oversimplified version of an oversimplified conclusion that was really based in rigorous reporting, you know, that was sort of condensed by the constraints of the information ecosystem. And you're competing there for attention and eyeballs. So obviously, it's very difficult to turn probabilistic incredibly hedged, nuanced ideas into something that you want to get in front of people. Like I, I always think that the the idea of clickbait is kind of a kind of a shitty idea because to some degree, obviously you don't want to mislead your audience. Obviously you don't want to create a situation where they click on something and, and feel wronged or or misled. But at the same time, it's in our nature. It's always been in our nature in the press to, you know, want to get important work out to people. And sometimes you have to frame that in a way that couches some of the nuance. So this is a long way of me trying to say, I don't, I don't know that it seems like everything was kind of working against. And, and I think that, you know, we should constantly be reckoning as people of the press with what we're doing right and wrong. And we should, you know, maybe approach a probabilistic mindset. We should, you know, we should foreground uncertainty probably better than we do. But at the same time, I mean, this really is a, a situation that we haven't seen in pretty much anyone's lifetime of anyone who's alive. So it's hard for us to to root ourselves in that moment or be able to understand that. And I do think this will color the way that that the media thinks about outsized risk going forward. I really do. Yeah, I want to go back to something you said about incentives because I think it's interesting. So the Silicon Valley example is a good one in my view. So Recode, uh, which is part of Vox, wrote about that handshakes thing, which was, I think it was at A16Z, and kind of did the sort of reporting I think you would want to do, right? Like notice that, ask some public health experts. They said, well, that seems a little bit far, but this could be a very big deal. But, you know, I wouldn't ban mass gatherings or handshakes or whatever you should. And then they said to us what they've been saying to everybody, the infectious disease people, like, you should really worry more about the flu at the moment. Like, this is still not affected that many people. The flu is way worse than people realize every year. Like, you know, worry about the flu. Don't be freaking out about this. And in the end, um, the people who were freaking about this were right, right? And like they look back on that and, and, and feel wronged by that kind of coverage. And it makes me think a bit about the incentives of the two sides here. So in venture capital, what you it's really tuned to be right about something very important one out of 20 times. So if you make a bunch of investments and most of them don't pay out, but one of them is Facebook, you are a god of Silicon Valley. And in journalism, you have to kind of do the opposite. You have to be right 19 out of 20 times. Because if people routinely come and your stories are wrong, 
or you told them something was going to go nuclear and it didn't, they begin to mistrust you. I was actually searching this before we talked. Um, if I look in my the the email for this show, right, as Client Show at Fox.com, and I searched the very first mention in it of coronavirus, it came from um, an audience member on February 6th. And they had heard an interview I gave around my book where I said, you know, there's a problem in the news media of overcoverage of sensational news and too little local news coverage. And the person writes to me and says, okay, well, I listened to that. And then I went and I checked Vox.com and Vox.com's top story was something about this coronavirus, (laughs) right? And so the point was like, look at me there, you know, saying that sensationalized coverage of non-local news is a problem. And there on Vox is sensationalized coverage of non-local news. And so we are always sort of under this pressure where people feel like we are sensationalizing things. If we're talking about a threat they haven't heard about, we're probably hyping it, that kind of thing. And oftentimes they're actually right, right? That's the other thing. It's not the it's not untrue that the news media sensationalizes and blows things out of proportion. And so it's this really weird and difficult space of are you optimizing to like get most things pretty right, which is going to lead you towards a fairly generic reporting strategy, right? Go talk to experts. What do most of them say and play the odds versus are you optimized in the way you approach things to um, be willing to get a lot of things wrong, but some really big things right by consistently questioning the conventional wisdom and kind of expert consensus. And like, you don't worry too much about the failures because what matters for both your sort of uh, capital and reputation are the successes. And both of those seem like very reasonable ways of moving through the world to me. They're just, um, and you actually need both, but they, they, they end you in very different places. This is essentially something that I have seen for the last I don't know, four years covering not just disinformation, but these sort of nuanced varieties of misinformation and the pro-Trump media and sort of this rise of like content marketers and influencers and Twitter pundits sort of becoming their own shadow news media. And it, it just happened sort of around the president and around his campaign and and this sort of alternative version of the media. But it hits at this at this point of these different incentives because those groups really are, you know, they're insurgent forces and they're not necessarily trying to play towards this idea of establishing long-term trust necessarily. Like the idea is, you know, to sort of expose the other side. And so it's easier if that's your goal, if your goal is to undermine the group that really needs to be right 19 out of 20 times, that is sort of has couched its entire professional reputation in this idea of trustworthiness and steadfastness and logic and, and reason and sort of consistency. You really only need to be right if you're trying to undermine that, that, that one, that one time. And what I think is, you know, interesting about the rise of kind of, of, of the, pro-Trump media, but also just even any sort of insurgent alt-media force is that they're really only trying to to be right that one or two times and to be very right. And there's no real consequence to being wrong. It's deflected in some kind of whataboutism, but really, you know, anytime some of these, these outlets or some of these individuals come at something and are just catastrophically wrong, then they point to the mainstream media's failures and sort of deflect that and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm basically just as good as them. But there's no, there's no real consequences because they're not setting themselves up in relation to be that sort of consistent thing. It's sort of, 
building trust by declaring up front that you're not really trying to be trustworthy to some degree. And I, I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing with you know, a lot of these blog posts on the website Medium around the coronavirus and sort of, I, I look at them a little bit and I'm, I'm really not trying to, do, you know, to denigrate the, the Silicon Valley crowd. I think there's, there's a lot of that going on. I think it's kind of counterproductive at the moment. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I think that there's a lot of these sort of like outside shots that people are taking. And I do think it's very similar to an investing strategy. It's kind of like a reputational play and it's saying, I am somebody who, has a different way of seeing the world and a different brand of thinking. And, you know, it is high risk, high reward. But at the same time, the risk actually isn't that much. If someone makes a really catastrophic coronavirus prediction in terms of, you know, case fatality rate or something like that, or looking at curves and, and, and models or debunking those, and they turn out to be, you know, completely wrong, they kind of can come back and say, well, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't run, you know, the New York Times. I don't run Vox. I was trying to lend my expertise in a moment of deep uncertainty. And sorry, I got it wrong. If they get it right, the upside, it's it's like what you said. It's an investment in Facebook. It is, I am the Nostradamus of the, you know, armchair epidemiology community. And that's what the incentives are. Because, and I think it just comes back down to, unlike the press, there's really not nearly as much of a, of a downside to being wrong. Whereas for, for the media, you know, like you said, one, one miss of, en- of any kind is something that's going to be kind of bandied and used against them for, for decades. But, but let me take the other side of it because I, I do want to try to make the critique generously of the media, which is there really isn't that much or maybe even enough actual consequence for us being wrong either. And I think this is the place where a lot of people kind of get angry at us and and, and with some, in my view, uh, good reason, which is to say the media doesn't like it when people yell at them for being wrong. But for all the reasons that, you know, in the modern world, trust is collapsing everywhere and people end up attached to uh, groups of audience members who sort of agree with them. You don't tend to see huge consequences for it. I mean, you know, sort of famously, the New York Times and and the Iraq war, kind of the entire media and Donald Trump. And even there, right, I would say, like, I'm somebody who always covered uh, Trump. You know, I would always just say, look, the model says he's got a 30 percent chance of winning. That's real. But when I look at my coverage, I don't think it really read as he has a 30 percent chance of winning. Do you know what I mean? I said that a bunch, but it didn't. It wasn't actually how I covered the election. Like, I think I would have if I had taken that as seriously as my statements said I was taking it, I would have done more coverage of, say, who would be in his cabinet. And that coverage would have been wrong because he would fire Chris Christie and the transition planning would go to hell. But nevertheless, I I would have done it. And so on the one hand, I am frustrated sometimes because I think that the media did a lot of good work in the run-up to this, and it doesn't get noted. And and again, I want to say, like, I think Vox in particular is a place that we did a lot of, like, what we know and don't knows and hear eight scenarios and, and sort of probabilistic pieces that nobody read at the time because, like, they didn't say anything declarative. But on the other hand, Peter Kafka wrote a great kind of uh, examination of this for for Recode. And I've been really trying to take it to heart and think about what it means, which is to say, even if I think sometimes we're being criticized unfairly, the fact of the matter is the reporting strategy to some degree failed in a very important way here. It failed on face masks. It failed to predict the 
path of the crisis, or at the very least, I think, consistently explain how uncertain that path could be. And the question of what to do about that strikes me as a really consequential one. We have been trapped for a long time in article formats that were optimized for print and that we basically poured it onto the web. And one, I think, real mistake of those article formats is they make everything disconnected. And so when we started Vox, like we created these card stacks and we had these sort of unified topic areas. And I was looking back and thinking how much I wish those were still around. And, and, and they went away because as platforms fractured, we kind of put them on all the platforms. We we're putting all this work into something that couldn't be on like, you know, Google AMP and Facebook, you know, instant articles and all these other places where people read us. But nevertheless, like the fact that we're still writing just disconnected articles. And so like an insight you needed is buried in this piece. And then two weeks later, you get something else. And like the, the coverage is all fractured. I think that's really one reason it's hard to communicate the fullness of what we know and also don't know all at once, because it's it's like it exists in our reporters or in our institutions, but it's not well spread out through or it's not very easily accessible to the audience. But then even if it were this issue of um just how do you cover an uncertain world where it just seems to me that we are having, I can't say for sure if we are actually having more low probability events explode for various reasons in the modern era, but it feels like we are. And even if we're not, it is certainly more noticeable when we do have them, right? Because they're, you know, like it's just more of a conversation over like what happened and what should we have done. And so there has to be some way of iterating our coverage here. I was talking to Philip Tetlock, who's this sort of scholar of um, forecasting. And he was saying that he thinks every article should come at the bottom with sort of like what predictions are being made and what probabilities does the writer assign to them. And I don't really know that you can do that because oftentimes I'm not trying to make or writers are not trying to make predictions in an article. We're just raising possibilities. But I get what he's saying there. Like there has to be some way of communicating, not just like what did the article say, but like what did we mean by what the article said? Like how seriously should you actually take what we're saying? And like how sure are we of what we're saying? And do we even know enough to know how sure we are of what we're saying? And yet, as I even think about how to do that. Would anybody want to read that article <laughs> or every article couched that many times with that many probabilities at the bottom? And I mean, it begins to to feel and look a little bit ridiculous. So this is one of the difficult things. And I'm glad you said it at the very end of would anyone want to read this? Because, you know, as you're describing some of the some of the Fox coverage that, you know, you felt really did a good job of laying that out. And some of the stuff that I've looked at, like, I think it gets into this this idea of a lot of people say that they want things after the fact that they didn't want during or the, or you know that there wasn't a lot of desire for and i and i think that you know we we can't separate any of this conversation away from the broader incentives that the modern media ecosystem is geared towards which is you know the fact that you know the media is is a business unfortunately to some degree i think that there, there is this difficulty because right like that kind of I'm going to state a fact and then I'm going to tell you the probability of it. And like, you know, everything has a 900 word article has 400 footnotes and actuarial tables to be able to understand <laughs> what's going on. I think obviously that's not a great experience. That's not one that a lot of people want when they're sitting on the subway, you know, scrolling to try to get some information in the 10 minutes of their commute that they have. I think that that's a real, that's a real issue. And I do think that, you know, that creates this unfair dynamic 
to some degree that people often say they want something that they that they don't necessarily what they say they want doesn't necessarily always match their behaviors and that's a struggle i think always for the press because if you don't sort of match the consumption behaviors you're you're not having a good business model <laughs> um uh, so, so that that's always kind of a, a constraint i i do want to say that i i feel like in this conversation i'm i'm being overly sort of defensive as, as, as a media professional compared to how I actually feel, which is I think there's a huge issue with not enough consequences to, to be wrong. I mean, I think that's, it's a huge issue with punditry in general. And that's something, you know, I'm, I'm writing for the opinion pages that I'm constantly trying to think about. And when I feel like I do get something wrong, I feel like I, you know, either have to correct it with a, a column or or need to talk about my, you know, on, on a place like Twitter, talk about the reason why I felt like I needed to write this piece and sort of explain the rationale and why I don't think necessarily it's wrong in some important ways, but, you know, my logic was right in other ways and, and vice versa. And that's obviously only getting seen by a very small audience of the people who actually, you know, consumed the original piece. So you have that difficulty. But what's kind of scares me right now is I'm starting to see this same sort of defensiveness that I, that I actually think is wrongheaded in the media about being wrong. And I, I'm also seeing it similarly in, you know, the expert community. I think right now this, this very fascinating thing is happening in which a lot of model are under attack and sort of the whole behavior of of modeling is under attack a, a lot by people on the, on the sort of the right and especially the, the far right fringes saying well you know if this if this particular model was was very very wrong how are we supposed to trust this and it's sort of a, obviously a simplistic understanding and a simplistic view but at the same time some of the responses are incredibly defensive there was a vanity fair piece on a former New York Times reporter who has kind of become a COVID uh, contrarian saying that, you know, the media is overhyping this, that the models are overhyping this, the experts are overhyping this, the lockdowns are a bridge too far, he has become very popular on especially Twitter for that kind of commentary. And in this Vanity Fair article, they interviewed a number of epidemiologists and the epidemiologists they were adding sort of insults into their critiques very in a very defensive way. And in one sense, this is completely understandable. These are people who've devoted their entire lives to this very specific field, which sort of operates in a way that most people's minds don't. And, you know, they understand the importance of models even when they're not correct as, you know, predicting a wide range of outcomes, which you sort of balance judgment against. They're right in being defensive, but at the same time, you know, people see that defensiveness and react against it. And then it works, you know, against the favor of the experts. And I, and I, the reason why this kind of scares me is because when it comes to medical information and science, things, things of that nature that are, that are sort of, you know, a, a sort of a different systemic way of thinking, it feels like something that we need to, we can't really take for granted. Uh, that each generation sort of needs to be taught to trust that and made to trust that rather than just sort of being said like, this is science, you dummies. And, and you know, you need to, uh, you need to just instinctively trust these experts. I, I think that that's not really the way that we're used to seeing. You know, I, I think that there's this, this idea among a lot of people who, uh, who are experts that, you know, that they're, I think they sort of take that 
that whole idea of, of, of expertise for granted to some degree. Um, when you look at developing countries, when people go in to do vaccine trials in developing countries, there's a, there's not just an, an idea like, you know, the, the Gates Foundation or some, you know, nonprofit doesn't just come in and say, everyone line up because there's, there's this science thing and we're just going to, you know, put this vaccine into your arms or we're going to, you know, we're going to, give you this medical treatment and don't worry about it. There's there's a real sort of medical education. There's an understanding of here's why we're doing this. Um, this is why you should trust us on this. And I think that that's kind of lost, especially now in, in our conversation among experts, that there's this, you know, the experts are understandably defensive, but nothing really in our current information ecosystem should be taken for granted or as a given uh, that that people are on board with your line of thinking. I feel like in 2020, all trust needs to be earned constantly and sort of reevaluated. And that bond needs to sort of be, you know, it's like renewing your vows. Uh, it has to happen all the time in order to have this healthy relationship. And I think that that, that, that gets lost. And I think it's very easy as an expert, as the press, to sort of, you know, we're doing a lot of work and we're, you know, we've devoted our, our lives and careers to to these pursuits. And so, you know, outsiders coming in and possibly acting in bad faith or thinking that we're acting in bad faith, it's difficult to process. But I think I think there has to be sort of a a really conscious mode to to not be overly defensive and to understand that that we can't take any of that trust for granted. It has to sort of be earned every day. And that, that's that's a difficult pursuit. So a couple of things here. So I want to say something that I'm going to come back to, which is to this point of trust, and I want to talk about this more, the media believes in general that the way it will earn trust is through being right. The media cannot control how right it is to the degree that we wish we could. Sometimes things will just turn out differently than, you know, the odds anticipated. And so I think increasingly, and particularly in like the modern internet era, trust is going to have to come also through transparency. And for a lot of reasons, it's very hard to do as a bigger organization. Organizations try and like there have been um, ombudsmen at the New York Times and, you know, there's bloggers and, and you know, sometimes people will go back and look at our old coverage, but but how to really institutionalize enough transparency that, that people feel like you're open to them. Vows are actually a good example here. I mean, you keep a relationship strong, not through always being right in it, or not even always through being a great partner, because God knows, you know, we're not always great partners, but through constantly working on it in an open way, right? And in a way, vows are a structure in which you do that. So I want to come back to this question of like, can how can you and can you build trust through transparency? But I also want to go back to something you were saying. The guy I think you're talking about, the former New York Times reporter is Alex Berenson, who's a kind of health contrarian. He wrote a widely panned book about marijuana policy. Um, he's kind of emerged as a Fox News COVID pundit. And something that I think is a real difficulty, and I see it when I talk to um, public health experts too, but I see it when I talk to economists on economic issues and all kinds of things, is that it is very hard for people to separate responding to bad critiques and responding to good critiques when the critiques are sort of the same. And so there are a lot of people making the critique that the models are all wrong and we should just reopen and the cost isn't worth it. And the way they're making it or the motivation for them making it, it or the, 
the empirics upon which they're making it are just bad. They're just garbage or they're ill-motivated or whatever it might be, right? Donald Trump tweeting out like the cure can't be worse than the disease kind of thing or, you know, um, pushing untested medications in press conferences. But the problem is the media or an expert group or something will get into a kind of formation against that. There's a critique coming in that is just not very valid. And so people become used to battling that back. But then they've developed an almost immune system against the valid form of the critique, right? A lot of these models have been wrong. The big IHME model, which was predicting 240,000 deaths, is now down to 60,000 or 70,000. Well, why is that? And it's clear that other places have not blown up in the way New York City has. Um, and not, and you can't put that all on San Francisco going into lockdown early. Florida didn't go into lockdown until April 3rd, I think it is. And yet Florida, despite a quite older population, is not anywhere near the nightmare that I think we would have expected it to be. So when I talk to people in the public health community, it's not that they won't have that conversation with me. But they're afraid of having that conversation because they don't want to give sucker or space to people who are going to take it way beyond where it goes. I mean, the fact that people are revising models and that like we don't have answers on coronavirus yet, it's too new. The science is evolving every single day. And some percentage of what we even think we know now for sure is going to turn out to be wrong. Like they all know that. But they're worried about the critiques from the worst sides of the argument. But that also makes them begin shutting down a public conversation that needs to be had. I mean, there's a huge amount of resonance here to the climate change discussion, where it's very hard for climate scientists to talk about uncertainty and mistakes and models and things because there's this like climate denialist community that wants to pounce on everything um, as evidence of a much more extreme position that is itself very dangerous. But when expert communities get into this conflation between the sort of public front they want to project against like a bad idea, but they sort of conflate that with what is underneath it, evolving science or uncertain models or whatever it might be. Like it does create the space where mistrust can grow, particularly if um, in a fast moving story, like future information begins to undermine like current understanding. And it seems like they were totally close to that. Um, or that we were totally in the media close to that. I think that what part of this comes down to is a 20th century framework for a lot of institutions of thinking, or even, or even just like a when we had our last sort of big, you know, virus, the H1N1 pandemic, our information ecosystem was completely different uh, in in 2009 than it is, you know, 10 years. Uh, 11 years later. And I think that the real part of the thinking here is, is the idea of attention. When you adopt a mindset of thinking about the way that the internet is structured, that media is structured, it all now works through this framework of attention. If you are being silent, if you are you know, trying to protect against that bad faith critique and not have that transparent discussion, you are allowing attention to be directed elsewhere. Every moment that you're not talking, really, uh, somebody else can fill the void. And I think that that idea of these attention voids is, is, is very real. And I think, you know, when you look at the CDC or the WHO and the mask guide, guidance, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, and I've spoken with some people in the, um, 
sort of misinformation, disinformation community who said that, you know, there there were similar issues with vaccines and autism in sort of the mid-2010s in which the CDC didn't really react appropriately to some of these anti-vax conspiracies because they thought, oh, well, you know, I mean, these are crazy people. These are people who aren't worth responding to. And we're, you know, we're not going to have that conversation. And meanwhile, all that time, they're ceding very important ground to those communities who are building these, you know, attention-sucking capacity via message boards and Facebook groups and, you know, these types of communities and, and, and you know, funding their own documentaries and sort of, you know, they're taking the attentional space because it's being seeded by institutions who believe that, you know, they sh- or experts who believe they shouldn't sort of deign to address these people. And I think that that's, you know, a little bit of what's happening now. There are these institutions that don't really understand that we are living in sort of a an information war in every space and that you have to sort of be mindful of that. You have to start thinking in terms of attention and as that being, you know, sort of the primary currency if if your goal is for people to be informed, if your goal is for, you know, your the the right message to get out. And so I think that's that that's like part of the real problem. I think that was part of the problem with, you know, with the masks, which is to say that guidance is changing. You know, clearly the WHO and the CDC have experts who, who you know, if, again, if they were able to just have a very candid, nuanced, long conversation uh, in public, they would probably say, yeah, we're, we're, you know, we're still doing tests. We don't know how aerosolized the virus is. We don't know how it's responding in laboratory situations. We're seeing conflicting results. Uh, therefore, you know, we believe because of the supply of masks, because of the unreliability, our guidance hasn't sort of hit the tipping point yet. And that there's, you know, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done for us to change our our guidance you know it, it, it's a high bar for us to to re, to rethink what we're doing and they could spend a lot of time promoting and campaigning on that uncertainty but instead you know they're they're faced with this or they're approaching this in this kind of 20th century sort of information framework in which you know we can revise this when it becomes necessary and in that time they're seeding all of their attentional space to to these other folks who are who are using it you know some in good faith to talk about the inconsistency and some in in bad faith in order to score you know political points or to you know destroy trust in institutions this episode is brought to you by state farm you've heard it before like a good neighbor state farm is there but it's more than just a tagline Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. 
Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. I, I do want to say about attention that it has its own demands, right? We don't just get to control what attention goes to, or the CDC doesn't just get to control what attention goes to. And when you were talking about like the way they might have communicated the level of uncertainty and you know the preponderance of evidence, but also we don't know about the aerosol dimension. And when you get a call from a reporter, and the reporter's story is, should we wear masks? At some point, the reporter is going to decide if you have said yes or no. <laughs> and the part of the quote that's going to get out is the part where you kind of almost say yes or no. And I didn't write anything on, on masks, but I'll tell a story of my own writing on this that I've been thinking about recently. So in the before time, a couple months ago, uh, before coronavirus took over everything, I was working on a story about climate change and conflict, about the evidence, and there's a fair amount of it that says, as the world becomes hotter in particular, people both on an individual and collective level become more prone to violence. And there's all kinds of interesting evidence here. But I've gotten um, from a listener of this podcast a lot of pushes to include more anthropology in my reporting and, and in the podcast. So I thought, OK, I'm going to try to do that here. I'm not just going to talk to the economists and the climate scientists. Let me talk to some anthropologists who have studied cultures under climate stress. So I, I called an anthropologist who'd edited a book on this. And I said to her, what do you think of it? And she gave me these very couched answers. And I couldn't tell what she was saying. I said, I, I, and, I, and so I pushed and I, I said, but look, if the question is simply, does climate change increase a culture's likelihood or propensity towards violence or towards conflict with other cultures or internally through civil unrest, do you think that's true or not? And she said to me, and, and I have this in my notes in front of me, anthropologists would never make a statement like that. They would never assume you could track a causal relationship like that. That the idea that you could ever disentangle everything going on from climate would just be ridiculous. And so, like, uh, in her view, like a reasonable anthropologist would never answer my question, which is a completely, in my view, reasonable take. But also, I need to write a story where the question is answered. Now, if I think there's no answer at all to the question, I won't write the story, right? My point is not to just like look around until I'm lying, but. When what you have is a bunch of very credentialed people, right, like, say, like Saul Shang over at Berkeley, who does great economics work on climate change and does these massive meta-analyses looking at climate and conflict and does have views here that seem pretty persuasive to me. And then somebody saying, like, well, we just we literally can't know. Like, we literally can't know probably isn't going to make it into the story. Or if it does, it's going to, like, not be the part of the story people pay attention to. And so there is in an attentionally competitive space, I kind of write about this in, in my polarization book in terms of like an attentionally competitive space uh, prizes polarizing uh, content when you're dealing with politics. But another thing it just 
surprises is content that is interesting, the content that stands out. And content that stands out is declarative, right? That's the reason that social media headlines are incredibly more declarative than magazine headlines were. Magazine headlines are all sort of elliptical and vague and, you know, America after coronavirus. And it's like, you know, you bring that over to social media and it's like, you know, how coronavirus makes a case for socialism or something, right? It, it goes much more definitive. And it's because like, that's what people will pay attention to. And even if you're writing a bunch of things that aren't that definitive, people don't see them because they don't get shared. And so it is, I think, a, a hard thing there. I mean, you can be very careful, but oftentimes the return on being very careful is that you're not the scientist who gets quoted or, you know, you're the CDC and nobody listens to you because like at some point, like this writer got an assignment from their editor and said, does everybody need to be wearing a mask? And they have to turn something in. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a massive problem. This is the perfect storm. This is the nightmare scenario, this very specific type of crisis. You recently had, uh, you did a podcast on on the end of the world and and, and risk, and and uh, your guest was talking about sort of correlated risk factors. And, it, and when I was listening to that, I, I immediately, you know, started thinking about all those sort of correlated risk factors under, uh, that, that sort of really... S- amplify the problem of COVID-19. This medical crisis sits atop like an incredibly fragile foundation. You know, you have you have the political polarization, uh, the distrust of, of experts. You have, you know, the, the information and internet architecture, it's this platform system that, you know, incentivizes, as you were just saying, things that are incendiary, that is, that is this competition for attention. But that also incentivizes, you know, a lot of behaviors to create things that are also just trying to to grab attention because that that's a business model. You have, you know, this sort of brewing distrust of the media. You have, you know, obviously an administration that has chosen to sort of use that as as sort of a main political enemy. You have like all of these things on top of it which was just basically create the the most unstable foundation for something that is evolving. When I attempt to to read, you know, some of these studies and 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 preprint papers coming from people who are, you know, running uh, either clinical trials on different medications and therapeutics or, uh, you know, simply just trying to show, you know, like uh, looking at, you know, serology uh, studies to try to determine, you know, the percent of people with antibodies. I'm just so struck by the fact that it, th- these are basically, you can hear the undertones of these people in the medical community expressing their struggle. Obviously, it's in sort of a, you know, <laughs> dry clinical language, but there was a, a great article um, that came out this week in Science, which talked about the way in which the coronavirus attacks the body and kind of walks through, you know, the lungs, the um, neurological systems, your digestive system, all sorts of things kind of going from the toes all the way up to the head. And in it, there's just unbelievable amounts of, of disagreement. You know, scientists X or, you know, epidemiologist X says this, but in the, in the emergency room, you know, <laughs> uh, doctors who are on the front lines are seeing this differently. And, you know, we're not sure if ventilators work very well or if, uh, you know, just oxygen is the, is the right thing from an earlier start. Um, you know, people who are showing up with very low oxygen levels, but not having, you know, the chest pain or the cough and then finding out they have advanced pneumonia and these medical doctors saying we, we haven't seen behavior like this. I mean, 
when you listen to that, I'm just always struck by the fact that these frontline individuals are, it almost sounds like they're pleading through some of this work to say, like, we just don't know. And I don't know how you you cover that, but I do think there is, I mean, don't you think there's more of an appetite for that now than ever? Uh, I, I look at some of the stuff that's coming um some of like the the long form science reporting that's coming out of the Atlantic, which has been really good on this uh, work by people like like Ed Young, and I've noticed that you know those pieces are really sort of long surveys of medical professionals who are kind of on the front lines of this crisis, saying in great detail just how much we don't know, and you know trying to sort of poke towards a future, but with great amounts of uncertainty. And it feels like there is at least right now more desire for that. And I'm just wondering if, if like, it seems to me that maybe that is at least in the very short term a way forward. I think so. Um, I think Ed has been one of the absolute best reporters on this. And one thing that he's able to do, uh, my colleague Julia Blues, who's on um, parental leave right now, but is also just an extraordinary reporter on these issues, something she's able to do is that they know the science well enough that scientists will have conversations with them like they do with other scientists. And I think that's a really important thing. Um, and they they know how to have that conversation back. So, I mean, I was saying to you earlier, the sort of difference I see between when some of the public health or in epidemiological experts I talk to are communicating in public or communicating on Twitter or see themselves sort of in a fight with, you know, people in politics who are trying to open things up and in many cases put them and their colleagues in danger because like they're actually treating these patients. And then when they're talking to me, and like we're 20 minutes into the conversation, how much more they kind of relax into uncertainty and, and and how much more they're sort of willing to have a space where they can be wrong. And I think there's a question here about how do we create those spaces? So I think Ed in these kind of bigger pieces is creating a space for that. But I also think that everybody's very afraid right now of being wrong. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people in the media and in um, the health community feel that well, look, I can we can defend our work before. And again, you've sort of heard me be a bit defensive of it here because I think a lot of it was reasonable. But nevertheless, like that 15 or 20 or 5% probability paid out. And so the bulk of the work did not see what was coming here. And so now nobody wants to make the mistake in the other direction. And I have noticed, and it's like that is a space for correlated error too, right? What if, and I think this is entirely plausible, the pendulum swung too far back? And it's not that coronavirus isn't a terrible problem because it obviously is, but it is that there is so much fear now of underplaying it a second time, right, with the potential of second spikes and everything else that people are being unable to really absorb a lot of things going better than we thought they would. And I think that's something that even in those big surveys, people are struggling with. I mean, I would say Ed's pieces and, and others I've been reading from people I really trust, including, by the way, mine. Um, they're all sort of oriented towards this question of like, how do we manage the uncertainty and badness of the coming months? But do people feel able to really kind of question the whole situation? Not even that I'm saying that we should, like I'm very much not on the side of like, let's open things up. But I think the question of how safe people feel 
being uncertain or even potentially being wrong in public is a really important one. And something that I think is true all across the board, it's true for the media, it's true for experts, it's just true in general on Twitter, on social media, and just in life now, is that we don't create spaces where people feel safe being wrong. Podcasting is almost the closest thing we have where people will muse and, and, and have a little bit more confidence. I would never play this fast and loose with these topics in an article, right? This is a very honest conversation you and I are having. Possibly we've lost the entire audience at this point because it's two journalists talking about problems of journalism without answers for them. And we're probably circling some of the same questions. It's really important to me. And I wish I felt more comfortable having this conversation in public more often. But my experience is that uncertainty gets weaponized against you. Tentativeness gets weaponized against you. Going back to something you did before and saying, maybe I had that wrong, often gets weaponized against you. And people are like, aha, of course you had that wrong. I knew it at the time. Like, you're an idiot. And then you don't want to do it, um, which also isn't good. Have you read Martin Gurry's book, Revolt of the Public? I have not. It's a book. It it has made a big splash kind of in Silicon Valley, got republished by Stripe Press. Um, Gurry is a very thoughtful guy. He's a CIA analyst, a media analyst in the CIA. Wrote this book that I, a lot of people kind of feel like explains everything. I find the book a little hard to parse in places, so I'm never sure I quite understand everything it's explaining. But the big picture on it is that he's connecting a huge increase in sort of civil unrest and, and, and dispute to like this democratization of information. And basically his argument is that what the internet has done is it's made it much clearer how naked sort of informational elites always were. And it's also created all this attention to whenever anybody in power gets something wrong, which I think the press did before that in a different way. Like the press is very antagonistic to people in power. We cover things that are going wrong in White Houses much more than we cover things that are going right in them. But the media or I'm sorry, social media really exploded that. And his view is that it's destabilizing governments everywhere. It's destabilizing institutions everywhere. But that systematically what these platforms have done is create an ability to swarm negative stories because of the kind of emotional impact of them, but no real ability to build anything new or more sustainable in their place because the same dynamics which make like yesterday's respected institution into today's villain makes the people who expose yesterday's institution into tomorrow's villain because like they'll then get things wrong too and now that people are paying attention to them there's that same sort of counter dynamic and it is just this i mean you call it sort of a like an informational an informational war of all against all but like i think there's really something to that like we we have really created the conditions for at least a kind of a public accountability even if it doesn't always come with public consequence but we haven't created the conditions, or nobody I think has quite figured out the conditions for creating institutions of sustained public trust in the aftermath. Like, like what is a new recipe for trust is something that doesn't seem to me that anybody has quite figured out. This was, uh, you mentioned it just at the end there, but I was I was going to push back because, you know, you are saying earlier there's there's no, we, ha we haven't created the those places where one can sort of feel comfortable being wrong. But then at the same time, you know, we were just talking earlier about how there's not enough consequences for being wrong, which is this super odd place to be in, right? Like, you know, the consequences like your mentions on Twitter are really bad for a couple days to a week. And then you have some people who, you know, will constantly kind of dog you. But in your in your sort of, you know, realm of the information war on your camp, uh, you know, those things are generally forgotten to some degree pretty quick. And I think that that's, you know, obviously a problem. Can I make one note on that that I'd love to hear your thoughts on because what it seems to me we've done is create a 
disproportionate level of social consequence for people without much professional consequence, which means everybody ends up unhappy because the journalist or the institution feels endlessly under attack. Um, people are very attuned to social feedback um, and they hate it. They hate feeling like they are the object of mockery. And so it's really unpleasant, upsetting, radicalizing, destabilizing. It makes people depressed. It makes them tentative, right? You and I know people go through this all the time and it really does affect them. And on the other hand, like people don't get fired. They don't lose 20% of their, they don't get a 20% pay cut. And so like to their critics, it feels like nothing happens. And so there's this like mixture of people in public situations feeling constantly aggrieved because they feel under like endless social scrutiny and that like there's like a mob waiting to pounce on them at any moment. And then their critics feeling like nothing ever happens because yeah, like they like flooded this person's mentions with miserable um, attacks for a couple of days. But yeah, they still have the same job a month later. I mean, there's nobody like the New York Times op-ed page is, I think, like the center of this dynamic, actually, um, although I won't make you comment on, on any of your colleagues on that. But I think you see the simultaneous like the feeling of there being no consequences with it's obvious that the constant criticism really affects people's mindset. And it's just it's a weird equilibrium that manages to make like both the targets feel constantly under attack and the critics who are successfully attacking them feel completely unsuccessful in getting anything done about it. And I think the end result of it too is that it's it's so and I don't mean this obviously I don't I don't mean this in like the, in the most negative sense of the word but just it's a selfish sort of system, right? It's a system that bases, you know, the news and 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 the consumption of it and and the narrative all around you, the person, the journalist, it sort of allows you to, it kind of clouds you from the rest of the work only, you know, to only sort of consider and think about, you know, the reaction. Um, and, and, I, and I think that that's, you know, that, and, and then your work sort of starts to become, especially if, if you're a pundit, I mean, it, it, it can happen to anyone. Uh, it starts to become a little bit about your experience and, and, and a little less about, you know, what you were, like what you were talking about at the end of the day, sort of gets obscured. And I think that that's sort of a problematic pathway to lead down. I think this this notion of being aggrieved and how to build frameworks of trust or ways to be wrong, I've been thinking about this a little bit in another realm recently, which is uh, the coronavirus task force, you know, 5 p.m. briefings where Donald Trump comes out and sort of does his uh, Trump show on uh, on television. And, you know, it's sort of the purest distillation, I think, of, of something we've been seeing for a very long time between the president and the media, which is, you know, setting up this kind of confrontational dynamic and you know, there's a lot of hand wringing from the media right now about what do we do about this, right? Like, should, you know, should they be aired live? Or is that, you know, airing misinformation? Is that giving him, you know, the opportunity to basically hold campaign rallies um, and, and sort of free airtime for that? Or is it necessary that, you know, we document this in real time, because this is the president of the United States? It's sort of the the dynamics we've been, you know, agonizing as as the press about for a very long time. And I just, I, I, I've been thinking about this conversation I had for another piece with Peter Pomerantsev, who I think you've had on, on, on this podcast yeah. before. And we were talking about coronavirus misinformation, but he, he kind of, after that conversation ended, we talked just a little bit about the press and some of these issues of trust. And he was explaining to me the way he was thinking about the way that the media and Donald Trump interact and basically said that right now, the, the way that 
many people in the press think of their job is, you know, punching up, speaking truth to power, calling out blatant lies. And that strategy sort of doesn't hold up in the Trump administration when, you know, speaking truth to power doesn't work all that well when power wants you to punch them because that's how they derive their power. And it's this idea that, you know, this this entire dynamic has sort of been inverted. And then so the press becomes the thing that Donald Trump wants them to be. And we end up in this system where he can you know, use that against the press for to undermine their credibility. And the press, you know, kind of doesn't know how to get out of this this tricky jam. But I think part of it is is like thinking about audience and the audience for these briefings. So, you know, when recently CNN aired the briefings and had these, you know, very sort of aggressive chirons, uh, lower third, you know, graphics sort of fact-checking uh, Trump aggressively, but sort of poking fun at him at the same time. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking, who's the audience for this, right? Is it for somebody who is a Trump supporter who maybe is flipping channels and sees that and it's and it's an effort to sort of, you know, reach across and shake them by the shoulders and say, this person is lying right now or is using this briefing as, as, as propaganda. Don't you see this? Can't you sort of, uh, you know, see the truth here? Is it for an undecided voter or somebody who doesn't really have an understanding of, you know, whether Trump is handling this pandemic properly and sort of trying to shake them by the shoulders and, and, and tell them, you know, you got, you got to see that this is, you know, this is a disaster that is unfolding before your eyes. Or is it political fan service, essentially, for a group of people whose mind is made up that Donald Trump is dangerous and, you know, ill-equipped to be the president of the United States? You know, what is that for? And and to me, it it, it seems as if that question is, is pretty obvious. It seems like those overly confrontational, perhaps, chirons are, are in order to act as political fan service. It's cathartic to see someone say, Trump is melting down in front of your eyes when you turn on CNN, if you believe that Trump is having, you know, a small meltdown. So I feel like there's this idea that, you know, the traditional ways in which the press is supposed to sort of speak truth to power, have those confrontational moments with authority, doesn't work when that's how power wants you to behave. And so I think it requires us to start thinking about the audience, right? If the audience is just, we just want to talk to the people who we talk to, who agree with us, that works just fine. That kind of creates your, you know, hero and villain narrative. And, uh, and you know, it's, it, it's, it's good entertainment in the process. But if you're trying to conceptualize your audience differently, if you're trying to really actually reach out to people, if you're trying, I think that we in the press don't do a good job at all thinking about that audience. We are obsessive thinking about audience when it comes to who is reading our work, you know, in real time on Chartbeat or on some of these, you know, analytics platforms. But I don't think we think really about the second order audience effects, what our actions are doing to other parts of the audience or the, or the people who aren't our audience and how it's playing there. I think we, we are really uncomfortable in the press thinking about those second order effects. We sort of extricate ourselves from them. And I think it's increasingly incredibly important that we do. And I think, it, it, I think this, you know, this is probably the purest distillation is with the president. But I think it it applies to this pandemic and this idea that you know the the way in which we do our jobs, the things that we choose to report and not report, all of that, I think that that has these second and third order effects, and we're just we kind of wash our hands of that and say, well, you know we're we kind of hide behind these platitudes of you know 
it's just, we're here to tell the truth. We're truth tellers. And that's what we're trying to do. But we're a part of this game and this, this, this system, whether we like it or not. And I, and I think that, I think that we do a really bad job of thinking about those audience effects. It seems to me that lurking in that answer is a issue of audience dynamics that we're not very comfortable talking about. So, Sean McElwee, who was just on the show talking about sort of what the left got wrong in 2020 and and sort of end, like how did how did Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren end up losing to Joe Biden? And he makes this point about the ways in which politicians misread engagement. So like you send out a tweet that's very radical and it gets you great engagement on that tweet. And his point is that the people who see that and write you off, you never hear from them. Like the fact that you got like, let's say you have 500,000 followers and that like really got a great reaction from 35,000 of them, but it actually turned off 50,000 of them. You only really see the 35,000. You don't see the people who's looked at that and said, oh, like you're not for me. And so it creates a systematic misreading of the audience. And in a very attentionally competitive sphere, I think that there is a push both from business models and from platforms towards what you might call like high engagement audience strategies. Like you need the audience to do something to choose you affirmatively and to get them to choose you affirmatively, you need to stand out. And what ends up happening is selecting for strategies that create a stronger positive reaction from part of the audience and simultaneously a stronger negative reaction from part of the audience versus sort of old monopolistic business models like in when you know you had one newspaper in a city or just a couple nightly newscasts which selected for an audience strategy which is more lowest common denominator you wanted everybody and to offend nobody and like you don't you don't worry really about losing people to the other players because there just weren't that many other players to lose them to and they were pretty similar to you anyway so now you have this problem where, yes, I mean, I think everything you're saying is true in the second order effects. And I think the media, we're quite bad at dealing with that. Like we look at a piece, the piece is doing great and getting a lot of attention. And the fact that it's polarizing you know, some of the audience or making this place feel like it's not for them, like we don't see it as much or, you know, maybe even rationalize it as, well, it's great. We have a real talker today, right? Everybody's talking about it. But on the other hand, the advertising market is collapsing as we speak and media business models are built on advertising for the most part, um, some subscriptions, but subscriptions to some degree even have a similar dynamic to this. And so at times of maximum business dislocation, when you're trying to figure out how to not lay people off and how to fund your reporting, it's very hard for editors and owners and other you know people who kind of make publishers make these decisions to decide to begin giving away sort of local audience maximization strategies in the hopes that yeah like we're going to not stand out quite as much and not get that attention and maybe see lower numbers but you know in the long run maybe that'll pay off in some hard to see way as more trust i'm not saying that would actually be the wrong thing i think you often do need to have that kind of vision and creativity to it um and there you know i could give kind of examples that, that we play around with at vox but it's a hard like it's a hard play and for cnn or any network, right? Like they're looking at their ratings and they're afraid of what's coming in the next year. And if they're both losing advertising and losing ratings, it's a that makes it a very tough time for experimentation. Places become more defensive under periods of scarcity and threat, not more experimental. Yeah. I I mean, I think the fact that the the media is a business is crucial in all of this. And yet it's the thing that, you know, it's 
sort of the almost like the dirty little secret. No one really wants to talk about that because again, we 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 tend to couch a lot of what we what we do in in a lot of these platitudes, you know, like uh, not to pick on a competitor, but you know, like democracy dies in darkness or the time the truth is hard, you know, like th- th- you have these sort of like platitudinal statements, but it's also this is a business and there's livelihoods at stake. There's there's people behind this and I don't think that there are it's completely understandable to me why uh, CNN would try to make an audience play with its chyron. So at the same time that I think, yeah, there's these, these effects are, are, I think, ultimately probably negative in terms of the long run view, what that audience is going to do. Um, cause I, cause I do think at the end of the day, like we're going to need to not turn off those, those 50,000 people to get the 30,000 people who are just incredibly into us. Uh, I, I think that, I, I think that's a, that's kind of a bad trade. Like, I think that trade works well for a period of time. And I also think it just incentivizes weird, weird behavior. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll be like, I'll be very honest, like I, the way that I see it in myself and have throughout the past, basically since the 2016 election, with Silicon Valley. I've kind of long been critical of it, well well before, you know, for probably five or six years before Donald Trump's election. But the narrative kind of caught up to me. And I was sort of early on the side of that as someone who, you know, really saw that these platforms were, you know, having a lot of negative effects in our society. And I still very much believe that. But it's easy to get caught in a very reflexive you know, reporting pattern in which, you know, I, I I kind of actually stepped away a little bit from it. I felt like I was, you know, at one point doing content moderation work for the platforms, like that I was just going through finding outsized examples of bad things that had happened in order, you know, to, to write about how this is proof that these companies, you know, don't have their, their shit together. And I believed that, but at the same time, it was leading me, like the incentives were leading me down a path where, it was like I wasn't almost even sure of what I was <laughs> doing to some degree, and that's me being incredibly honest. Uh, you know, there it it also happened in coverage of the pro Trump media. You know, I, I've I've been pretty open about this too, but I re- did a lot of reporting on a lot of these conspiracy theorists and shock jocks and trolls, and talked to a lot of them and printed their quotes and was sort of fascinated by it so much that I wasn't really thinking about, you know, who I was giving my platform to or what kind of attention I was doing and whether or not, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze. And I think some of that was because I was kind of being like cheered on via who was reading and how and and how people were reacting and and you know, my my career was advanced because of it. And then I think, you know, when I took stock of some of those things, you know, some of it I thought was worth it, but uh, there were others in which I thought I sort of, the incentives led me into a weird place. And so I think I'm really worried about that broadly, like sort of industry-wide as this happens, because I think the financial incentives lead us to a place where we kind of harden ourselves a little to specific narratives and sort of, they become tropes. I think that trade-off without really, really interrogating it and thinking about sort of the long-term effects of it, I think ultimately trends negatively towards the towards the business in terms of, you know, that sort of wider adoption and and satisfaction, but also also I think trust. 
Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Let me, in the time we have left here, try to end this with a little bit more of a constructive note. I talked earlier about coming back to this idea of building trust through transparency. And if I just asked you how to do that, like, what would you say? Like, recognizing these are big institutions and there's a lot of people in them and it's tricky, right? It's not like being an individual who's just speaking about your own failings. It's very easy to be vulnerable and open on your own behalf. It's harder to be do that institutionally or on behalf of of, of others. But I do think transparency is going to be part of any solution and has been part of any solutions. And so are there ways to do that? Like we've talked about probabilistic reporting, but is there more transparent approaches to reporting or to relaying what we've learned? I think the transparency has to come from how we think about those stories and from assigning different stories and from what we choose to okay and how we choose to think about punditry. I mean, I think I think it's everything from rethinking headlines to, I want to say, you know, having more public editors and having more, you know, conversations with those types of people. But those are really only interesting, I think, to <laughs> to people who are like media watchers. Um, you know, I've always been kind of a fan of if you have something like, you know, let's say anonymous sourcing. I know this is slightly different than coronavirus coverage, but that, uh, you know, you build something into the sort of the architecture of the website that allows you to mouse over it. And there's a sort of side description of, of how that, how that process went about or why, or why that, you know, that sourcing is anonymous, just a little bit more for somebody that sort of doesn't require them to do that much more work. It's just sort of like pops up and you're, uh, if you want to engage with it that way, you can, if not, you know, you don't have to, but I think, I think there is just foregrounding. There's not a great answer, but foregrounding a lot of, of uncertainty high up. I mean, I just I just think right now, at least, when the stakes are, you know, political stakes are life and death for, for people, obviously. But, you know, this pandemic is life and death in terms of, did you wash your hands uh, today? Uh, did you wash your hands 10 minutes ago? So because those stakes are just so elevated, I think, at least in this crisis, foregrounding uncertainty 
everywhere kind of all the time is is probably a, a really good start. I'm not sure. I mean, what, what, what do you, you think as news organization leader about this, how you're trying to structure that? I think it's really hard. Um, I don't think there are great answers. So I do think about trying to report probabilistically, but, you know, I'm a little bit chastened by the fact that I do think we often try to do that and did that a bunch of times here. And it doesn't it's not the part that gets looked at later. Um, I do think it's important to try to figure out ways to cover things that are low probability, but in ways where people can hear them. Um, so and I don't just mean like low probability in terms of disaster, but I also mean low probability in terms of, well, what if everything we're reporting is wrong? Right. So. I don't think that means like raising up cranks, but there are often people making these arguments. So like John Ioannidis, who's a very well-respected scientist at Stanford, you know, he's a COVID contrarian to some degree. And he's been actually doing studies, making the argument that, you know, it's been more prevalent and has a lower fatality rate than others. And I think that, you know, trying to figure out how to cover people like him is a good way of having these conversations. So at least you're open to them and absorbing them. But then the question of like, what do you do? Like we try to answer and think through criticism. I mean, I mentioned this great, I, I think it's great, Peter Kafka piece on Recode about like, what did the media get wrong in the run-up to this? And I'm having conversations like this one, trying to think about the same thing too, because like you have to have that internal culture of like actually working through these questions. And on the other hand, you know, everybody who has tried something like this more regularly, like finds that you also don't just, you could just drown your organization in dealing with every critique from every direction. So the question of like, which ones you choose to deal with, it has the same problems of choice that everything else in media does, right? Where it's like, you know, do I deal with every kind of MAGA critique of Vox coverage? Do I deal with every, <laughs> and it go it kind of goes on and on like that, right? Like the anti-vaxxers feel like they're not taken seriously enough. And I don't mean to conflate good and bad critiques by like comparing them, but by comparing uh, their sources, what I mean to say more directly is just like, there's a very overwhelming amount of criticism and there's also a lot of work to do every day. And so trying to figure out how to separate signal from noise is always a project and whose job is it when everybody's already overloaded and like these things are actually tough but i think it's important you know my obsession on this is sort of twofold one and i don't know if this really helps so much with transparency but i do think news organizations should do a better job publicly publishing and thinking through like standards of newsworthiness that they can hold themselves to and be held to again here i think that i feel reasonably good about box i mean we've been doing pandemic stuff um, forever. Our Netflix show is a whole episode on the next pandemic, which predicts us pretty damn well, actually. Um, I was doing videos with Bill Gates in 2015 on Vox about, you know, the threat of a respiratory flu spreading around the world. But then it's, it, it is hard to like ask the question of like, well, how much of that coverage should we have done? But I do think if we were more upfront about what our newsworthiness standards are, it would just help us make those decisions better. And then the secondary thing is amplification. You and I are both, I think, pretty obsessed with this idea that the primary thing the media does is choose what to amplify and what to direct attention to. And I think that if we had better newsworthiness standards, um, we could be a little bit more transparent about why we are amplifying and what we are amplifying um, and why we decide not to do it. But again, I think if I implemented both of those things even if I could implement both of those things and they're not really under my control these days um, to the full level at which like I might think they make sense, I don't know that they would actually solve any of the problems, right? I think they would make me feel better about some things and I think they would in some ways give like me things to point to, but I don't 
see a model that is perfect here. I actually, oddly enough, think podcasts are useful because they create this like space where you can have conversations, which is like a little bit of an easier way to do it. But um, but they're also not going to answer the question. So I don't know. I do think it's a genuinely hard problem. And I, I recognize that it might be annoying to listen to this long podcast where we're just sort of talking our way around a difficult issue. But I do believe in these things that sometimes you just want to sit in the problem for a while and try to understand its contours is at least a first step towards thinking about how you might fix it. I wrote a piece last week in which I, w- I was trying to think through some of these things myself. And, and one, of, one of the things I thought might be constructive would be to list the things that we don't know, <laughs> or just some of the some of the, ma- the major things that we don't know about this. Because I thought, hey, you know, I mean, like, I can foreground all, all that uncertainty, at least to people who are reading me, or at least people who are seeing that. And, you know, maybe they'll see the New York Times logo underneath it and, and understand that, you know, that it's not just myself, this is, you know, a whole news organization grappling with what we don't know and what we know in real time. And, you know, it was not a well uh, received piece. It was either people saying, you know, hey, this is uh, this was really unhelpful. Thank you for like, this is just a list of, of things to be worried about. And uh, I don't feel good about it. But I also, A, don't feel like I learned anything because these are all sort of the known unknowns. And it was difficult because, you know, I felt like it was a good exercise, but then, you know, to some degree, it didn't really satisfy people. It wasn't really, uh, it wasn't a really popular piece. There is such an issue, you know, because I think that is one of the things that, that we that we need to do. But then, you know, when you do it and people don't appreciate it, that's 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 a hard thing to to grapple with, um, and and I'll continue to do that unpopular stuff. I think because it's it's worthy, but you know if it's not, it sort of was proof to me that like that doesn't really move the needle. And so, yeah, you know, here we are talking about it on a podcast. <laughs> well, this is going to fix everything. I think we got to close it here. So let me move to maybe something we can constructively suggest, which are three bucks. Sure. My first one is the uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. Um, I just feel that in the uh, in the past, I mean, it deals with a lot of thorny issues like this of expertise and uh, and science. But but I think what is what has been very helpful in my own work, having read it about a year ago, is the way in which it has sort of showed me how there are these umbrella issues, you know, climate change being the umbrella issue and how, you know, all those sort of correlated risk factors work together. And so I I found it really a a really sort of helpful journalistic approach for me or um, I mean, obviously, it's it's intensely uh, informative and very scary, but helpful in, in the sense of showing how how to survey a a very massive world changing problem uh, and sort of slice it. Um, the The second one is uh, not it's it's a novel, but it's called Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, and it is very short and hilarious. And it's basically about a uh, a woman who uh, goes to sort of be, become a like a nanny, live in caregiver to. Uh, set of twins who um can spontaneously combust and it's uh it's just like an amazing engrossing read it's one of the only things during this pandemic that i've been able to uh like keep my attention on and that has sort of sucked me completely out of you know reality and brought me into something so i i 
I think that that is uh, probably the best thing you can do for yourself is to give yourself an escape. So Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson is great. And then the third one is Uncanny Valley by Anna uh, Wiener, who is a writer for The New Yorker. Came out early this year, and it's a memoir of her time working at startups in Silicon Valley. And what I love about that book is it really sort of traces the humanity of the people who are building these uh, these products and who are doing a lot of this sort of systems-based thinking uh, that we're talking about um, and maybe have some of these contrarian ideas. And it's sort of, you know, unsparingly critical while also really humanizing them. And it shows how a lot of decisions sort of get made with the best intentions, but maybe a framework that isn't uh, fully thinking about the consequences. So I, I really appreciate as someone who covers that industry and is often thinking about things maybe in a, in a blanket way i i felt like this was was a, a really unique portrait so i recommend that charlie Worsell, thank you very much thanks for having me thank you to charlie for being here thank you to all of you for being here thank you to roger karma for researching to jeffrey geld for editing and producing the ezra klein show is a vox media podcast production In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.